0: yet another episode of when a guy has a really fucked gender as always i'm your host jolene and i'm joined this week by peach peach would you like would you like to say hello to the audience
1: hello i am excited to be on this podcast wag harfag fag <laughs>
0: uh yeah wag her fag <laughs> i don't think anyone's ever actually tried to pronounce it on the podcast before i have a few times just like in my bedroom but um never really never really settled on how i like it i like wag her fag that's a that's a good that's how we're pronouncing it from now on guys
1: excellent <laughs> anything that has the word fag in it i'm like i'm there that's me
0: we're gonna be we're gonna probably be saying fag a lot in this episode. I suspect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. On which, on which note, how would you describe your gender, Peach?
1: <laughs> good lord, that is such a good question. Um, I think the terms that I have sort of settled on that I use in most of my bios, I will say, uh, she, they, uh, gay, and male, are sort of the big three but a lot of it's pretty flexible. I consider myself non-binary. Um, I've never really considered myself like FTM or trans mask or trans man or anything like that. So uh, yeah, but I mean, I'm pretty flexible. It's my gender is, you know, kind of whatever the situation calls for or whatever i think would be most fun um and you know i guess like fag or faggot is also accurate so i don't know it's i feel like i i often just have my gender thrust upon me but i don't know it's what is it it's like that quote some are born faggots and others have faggot." Thrust upon them, so I would be the first one.
2: You were born faggot?
1: I was. I definitely was. Okay. And I think it's interesting because, like, you know, I so I grew up in a conservative part of California. And, you know, my parents were. It was a, it was a glass closet situation, and they weren't outwardly super homophobic or transphobic, I'll say. Uh, and it became very obvious by the time that I was like in middle school, and the California Prop 8 was going around. For people that don't know, it was yes on Prop 8 meant defining marriage, bet- as a marriage between like a man and a woman. And it was very confusing. And it was like, yes, on Prop 8 meant no gay marriage, but no, on Prop 8 meant yes, gay marriage. So the right, city that and... I grew up in, yeah.
0: Well, gay marriage had been legalized in California prior to that at some point, if I understand my history, right?
1: It was something like that, or it was, it was not legal, and then they were trying to make it legal, and then it became legal, and then it wasn't legal again, and then it became legal again. It was very convoluted, but basically where I grew up, it's, I remember the yellow and blue uh, yes on Prop 8, aka no on gay marriage, like little signs in a lot of my like neighbor's yards and had a lot of that sentiment expressed. Uh, by I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of you know, future fag hags that I'm sure are have a lot of gay male friends now. But yeah, <laughs> <on> a, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, and so I was very like outspoken about like, well, I think that this should be okay. And my parents were very like, so do you have anything to tell us about that? And I'm like. Well, you can be an ally,
2: be straight,
1: <laughs> um, but you know, and so obviously, like, I came out in my senior year. I like helped reform our GSA, but at least we had like all like gay people on our on our board, which is pretty impressive for like a conservative uh, conservative area little GSA. Um, but it's been funny because. In the last sort of year, uh, as I've been kind of reevaluating a lot of my early childhood and remembering a lot of it, going through a lot of like uh, sort of uh, diagnosing and recognizing a lot of uh, previously untreated issues, I sort of realized more and more that I've really just like been a fag my entire life. Like I was a very effeminate child. I was very interested in, like, (laughs) I owned all of the Gossip Girl books, and most people don't know that that's a book series. It was, written by Cicely von Zygazar, so I owned all of those, and I loved the, like, designer fashion, and I had a lot of, like, brat stalls, and I loved, you know, everything, like, glamorous, and I would you know, when Christian Siriano won Project Runway, it was like, wow, this is me. Look at what I can do with my life. Uh, and, you know, like, I stole a lot of my mother and sister's clothes and and <laughs> wore them, and so, you know, uh, what, like, 20 years later, uh, and, like, I would say that my first like, I, I very distinctly remember the first time that I was, like, attracted to a boy. It was when I was in first grade, and I saw this boy, uh, like, take his shirt off accidentally, trying to take his sweatshirt off, and just, like, seeing his bare chest just, like, set off something in me. And I was always, like, a very sexual child. Uh, I just, you know, really like, I loved seeing sex on TV, and even with, like, straight sex, I, you know, wanted to be the girl, I wanted to be the boy, like, I wanted to be involved in that, and so, like, I was very aware of my sexual feelings towards, like, other boys and, like, men, and throughout my childhood, I was, like, despite being a very, like, effeminate like a very quote unquote like feminine girl or whatever I was never afforded any type of like safety or or like victim status because of it uh like I was very often treated as like the like as a predator as the aggressor as like as like a sexual predator especially like I would be I would be consistently told by like girls or other people especially that they, like, did not want me to be their friend or did not want me to hang out with their friends and were, like, very forward about it, too. And so, you know, like, I felt very isolated, like, growing up in this sort of area where there were not that many, like, gay people, trans people. There were some, but not not too many and so it wasn't until i was like in college and met like gay and trans people that i was like oh yeah this is this is definitely definitely for for me and i think that like i had started hearing and seeing about like transgender men and i was very like wow this is really cool i like everything that these people get I like I like everything that these men get to do but like that's it's not for someone like me but you know I had like wanted phalloplasty since I had learned about it when I was probably 18 and I was like wow there's a surgery that you can get that gives you a penis I literally don't care what the other trade-offs are that sounds worth it to me and I just sort of held that in for, like, five years and actually went through a period of, like, really trying to butch it up and over-exaggerate my attraction to women Um, and kind of in a way to, like, I don't know, almost, like, straighten myself out a little bit or, like, overcompensate for the, like, effeminacy that I was constantly being punished for. Uh, And, you know, like, spent a solid many years trying to like be really involved in like lesbianism but I was bad at it I was very bad at it uh and I didn't I yeah I was very bad at having sex with cis women um like very few occasions that I did it and so like when I decided that you know like I'm going to transition now. Uh, I'm going to get the surgery. I don't care anymore how how difficult it's going to be. I'll just I'll just I'll just do it. Uh, it kind of was a really big turning point for my identity because I felt like it was sort of the start of me on my way to being comfortable, like identifying as like solidly gay and not like bisexual, which I had sort of labeled myself since I was like in high school and yeah it really wasn't until I actually had phalloplasty that like one I even realized I had bottom dysphoria which was kind of funny because it's so often yeah (laughs) it's so often this sentiment and especially in like trans medical spaces of which they do not like me there but it's, <laughs> they do not like me in these transmedical spaces. They get very upset when a she, they has had phalloplasty and, you know, takes it, you know, takes the the phalloplasty from every he, him and, you know, tries to impersonate pre-op MTFs who, you know, all look <laughs> exactly the same. Uh, they're all, it's, it's the one, the one pre-op MTF and we all have to share her. Uh, what else? This is, this all comes from the time that I, that's, that uh, my information on my phalloplasty uh, Reddit account got like posted for ridicule on the trans medical subreddit. And it was very funny seeing the responses. And then I got banned from the subreddit for responding. And I was just like, cause they were just like, oh, I bet she stole it from this person or i bet she lied to the doctors and i was like i did and i think you should too but that was that, was, that was actually
0: a question i wanted to ask you was did you have to lie to doctors and um, of
1: course i lied to doctors The like the answer key is there i don't know why you wouldn't take it
0: yeah I mean, it's no i mean there a previous uh previous guest i think at one point described having um a conversation with his therapist where he was like his therapist was like okay i'm writing this letter for uh top surgery do you want me to say like trans masculine non-binary or trans man or whatever and this friend was like kind of waffling and the therapist was like okay well since we're talking to an insurance company i'm gonna say trans man
1: and he
0: was like yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah, I, I, I. It is. You do not need to. Um. It's probably good if insurance companies are under a couple of uh mis uh misapprehensions about how you're living your life and what you're doing, because um, those people don't mm-hmm. want to do anything good for you.
1: <laughs> no, I've yeah, I I think it's really funny too, um, because. It wasn't honestly. It wasn't so much that I was lying to doctors as I was lying to my insurance company because I had United Healthcare at the time that I was going for phalloplasty, and they are notoriously horrible, horrible, horrible for transgender surgeries. Uh, I have now got. I've now dealt twice in my own transition trying to getting them to successfully overturn their like. Denials of my surgery. Uh, one was actually like for uh, body masculinizing liposuction, where uh, I was able to like successfully pr- like prove that despite my policy not covering it, I was like, well, this is more effective treatment for gender dysphoria than hormones alone because of all of these reasons like it's safer it's more long-term it's this it's that it's the other thing I put together this like crazy like 30 page document that I like ended up having to like submit to the state who then forced UHC to overturn their denial of that procedure and then I like switched insurances because I was like you guys suck and I hate you so that was the first time I did that but then the second time was actually after phalloplasty uh And I'll, I'll get to that part later, but you know, it's my experience has just been, there's no, there's no point, um, giving insurance companies, especially the one that I had any reason to deny or reverse or whatever these procedures. And I was like, I know what you want to hear. So I told my therapist, he, him only ftm only binary only uh i don't really care if they like still want to hear that you're straight you can put that in there too debilitating chronic dysphoria i don't know i I cry every night that i don't have a penis um you know severe mental health issues uh, or no, no no don't put that severe dysphoria <laughs> whatever i was like okay just like we gotta like thread the needle um, right you know I, right I want to kill of, myself. The
0: right kind of sick. I,
1: exactly. Right. Exactly. I want to.
0: I want to. Right. I. I want to kill myself, but it will be perfectly capable of taking care of myself post-op or whatever the. Whatever the fuck.
1: Exactly. I mean.
0: Yeah. Um. So wait, are you on hormones?
1: I am. I've actually been okay. on hormones for like three plus years. A lot of people ask me that, and I think it's because I don't look like someone that's been on hormones. Uh, or sound like it or anything
0: (laughs) well it was because of something you said with body masculinizing liposuction and i i was just i guess unclear if something that something that you phrased in there in there somewhere made me think that maybe you hadn't or you weren't but i don't i don't know okay
1: no it's, it's all right um I also am probably likely intersex, which is what I attribute a lot of the, the ways that my body doesn't really respond well to hormones. So it's like, wow. I do have a very like feminine figure. And it was like, even now I am very often uh, like viewed as like a woman or like female or whatever by people like in public. And so it was like, it literally like, I spent you know a solid year plus post-op uh living essentially just like as like a woman that happened to have a penis because that's how everyone else saw me which was very funny and caused some very interesting sort of side effects but like you know I've I've always been very like effeminate and like small and like feminine compared to like the rest of my family which i don't know is just kind of it is what it is but i think it gave me a very sort of interesting experience being post-op and also going for phalloplasty just kind of the whole range of experiences because uh when i was when i was always looking into it it was uh, the people that got phalloplasty were the binary straight men with very heteronormative, cis-heteronormative, uh, sexual preferences. And, you know, I, like, didn't actually know anyone personally that was going for phalloplasty, that had gotten phalloplasty when I started going for it. Um, and you know, I felt like I was going to have to really hyper-masculinize myself and my experiences and really downplay uh, certain parts of myself in order to, like, successfully have surgery. Um, And I think that was really perpetuated by a lot of the phalloplasty spaces, which I fucking hate being in. There's Facebooks and Discords, and I have, like, sorry hold on some many of which i have been like kicked out of for being too faggy about it they don't like when you have when you like to make jokes or sex jokes or talk about gay sex too graphically or um whatever even when some of the moderators are gay or whatever but you know it just felt like even in these spaces it was like we have to adhere to these very like transmedicalist ideas of like pain and suffering of of bottom surgery and you know maybe at the end you'll be able to stick your dick in your cishet wife's vagina and i'm just like okay that sounds disgusting but um whatever you know and so for a while it was very isolating going through the you know phalloplasty process as someone who didn't really know anybody else that was interested in it um or that was like seriously working towards it or had gotten it it was maybe like a couple weeks before I got surgery that I like actually met in person people that had gotten phalloplasty uh and so it was a lot of just like well, I just have to trust that I know better than everybody else. I know better than everybody else about what my own experience is going to be, what my needs are going to be, how I'm going to respond to surgery and really focus on that. Like I didn't enjoy hearing about other people's phalloplasty experiences. I was never interested in reading any of the literature about it or anybody else's experiences because I was like, listen, if you're if you're not if you're not like a fag, if you are not involved in the faggot lifestyle, if you don't have sex with men, like, I really don't care what you have to say because it's not going to be relatable to me. And it's not really what I'm interested in doing anyway, especially if it's like only tops, only like masculine tops. And then there was me over here being like, so, um, you know, what chastity cages can, can I buy post-op?
0: Which ones can you?
1: Literally none of them. They don't make oh. they don't make fucking cages for big thick clits like mine. Even uh, the extra large sizes is like oh ours is <laughs> like four point seven inches and I'm like I'm five and a half. <laughs> <Can't>, please. <laughs> That's one of the things that they don't warn you about for phalloplasty, is you know they don't they don't tell you like. What do you what are you supposed to do if your big huge cock is too big for like every chastity cage on the market?
0: That's fucking tragic. That's so fucked up.
1: It's literally so sad. It is so sad. They don't tell you that like that's going to be an issue. They don't tell you that like what if you want to use those like really cool sheets? Uh you know, the ones that are like, oh, you get like a, a, a knot or a tentacle or you know, you get like the cool, like, I don't know, the 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 bumpy ones on on the outside to like have cool freaky sex. But they're like, oh yeah, the it's only like an inch diameter on the inside and you can only be like four inches because we're expecting everyone who uses this to have like a small dick. And I'm like, but what about me? What about the girls with big dicks, big long dicks that wants to do these things too?
0: It's fucked up. We need we need to fix this. Something needs to be done. We
1: we really do. It's it's funny because like the you know the the longer I've I'm I'm living post-op and the more that this is just a normal part of my life, it's the more that a lot of these like issues that face that like people assume that only cis men face and I think especially in, like, trans trans transman, FTM, whatever you want to call them, circles, there's this reoccurring idea that, like, trans men's issues and cis men's issues are, like, completely separate, and that there could never be any overlap. Um, And I just think that's kind of a a silly approach, because a lot of, like, men's, a lot of, like, quote-unquote men's issues are you know very applicable to both parties in the ways that like all men are going to be held up to you know social male gendered expectations and all men are punished for failing to meet them so you know like with clothing for example or underwear when i talk to you know other other gays of of hung experience like you know uh a little internet mucci of mine is a like by guy that's like six inches when he's soft and I'm like you know it's you and me sister they really just do not make underwear for dicks that big in the front and it's painful like it's painful to wear underwear and I know it comes off as like a humble brag where it's like oh my dick is just (laughs) too big and literally my ass is too fat and I straight up cannot find underwear that does not like make me want to tear my clothes off but like it is really hard out here for like the guys with like you know big juicy asses and you know big meaty thighs and like curvy builds and like big dicks there's there's not a lot of options for us because you know I think that unfortunately male like men's clothing quote-unquote is not any better suited to accommodate the like Natural body diversity of men uh, than like women's clothing is. I think that just women get more heavily punished for, you know, wearing clothes that don't fit them right. There's just more scrutiny in women than there is in men, but that doesn't make the clothing uncomfortable. That doesn't make the clothing comfortable when you're, you know, packing a oh, triple layer cake in the back, you know, one on each cheek and you're also like six inches in the front, and every pair of like underwear is just not not gonna work. <laughs> i have even I'm even like in the process of trying to make my own underwear because I'm like I literally cannot stand this anymore. I just go commando most days.
0: Hell yeah, hell yeah. Do you mostly wear? men or women's clothing?
1: Um, that's kind of a great question because (laughs) so I got phalloplasty in March of 2021 and then I had a revision slash some yeah, I had like a revision and glansplasty uh, like revision where they kind of make your make your uncut dick look circumcised, which I te- like I already was because I, I asked for that to be done first stage, knowing that initially the surgical route that I went, which was to get phalloplasty uh without a vaginectomy, like without removal of the of like the front hole, uh, but with urethral lengthening to give me the ability to stand to pee through my dick. Uh, was like that combination in particular has a very high complication rate and I knew that I was just going to be getting multiple surgeries and so uh, like I had opted to to do like the you know the surgical circumcision more or less at the beginning because I'm Jewish and I was like you know I would have been cut so I want to have that happen for me like as soon as I have one otherwise it would weird and i understand the like you know risks associated with it uh was you know it might like doing it stage one might make it like flatten out faster but you know i'll just get it redone i'm gonna have a lot of surgeries anyway and then in uh 2022 i ended up having five uh (laughs) five surgeries Not all phalloplasty related, but all trans related, because I was that was my one year on the probably best trans surgery uh, insurance, which was Blue Shield of California. And it was dumb, stupid expensive. And I was like, well, this is going to be most of my life savings. So let me just get every surgery imaginable. So I got like my face done, my body done, my like dick done multiple times, and a lot of. Uh, Like some complication revisions, my implants, uh, I had fat grafting in my arm where my uh, RFF scar is. And uh, I think I got some minor revisions to like my top surgery. And so during that time, because of course I was mostly (laughs) like either getting surgery or in recovery, uh, I like gained a lot of weight. So most of my like Fem women's clothes didn't really fit anymore uh, so I was mainly just like wearing my uh my boyfriend's like men's clothes uh and still you know getting gendered almost universally as female and it's just kind of now that I'm starting to build back up like a fitting fem wardrobe like I would love to wear mostly or almost exclusively women's clothes. It's just like my body type has changed so much in the past couple of years since I bought new clothes. Uh, I like kind of have to build it back up from scratch. And I'm very picky about uh, like fabric texture and, you know, like cut and, also sorry another thing that they don't tell you about getting phalloplasty is uh what if you like mini skirts but you know your penis is too long for it like what if it sticks out the bottom
0: <laughs> yeah you're were, we were talking about this in the dms um i'm sorry oh, yeah.
1: it's tragic <laughs> It really is. So yeah, the the DM conversation we had was you need uh, to you need to, went... you need
0: to you need to talk. That's that's the answer. I do get get uh, like a gaff, get a gaff or something.
1: No, like I don't talk. Like I can't talk. Actually, that's a yeah, that's a question I, I, that I've I, seen I multiple people probably, ask.
0: I, I, I was thinking about the mechanics of that, and that actually probably would not work with i don't know i guess i've never had i've never had phalloplasty obviously so i can't say that i know what it's like to have that kind of (laughs) dick but i don't know i couldn't even i couldn't even figure out i couldn't even figure out tucking on my dick so Mm -hmm.
1: um like you know all props to the girls that tuck but that shit is so uncomfortable And I would literally just, like, rather kill myself when I'm just, like, wearing too tight of underwear. I'm just, like, this is the worst thing in the world. This is what tucking is like. But this is actually, like, it's interesting because tucking is, tucking post-op is something that comes up not, like, super often, but, like, semi-frequently amongst, like, especially a lot of gender non-conforming, not often non-binary, but not exclusively, like, Uh, trans people that are going for phalloplasty and sort of the general consensus is one you just have to accept that you're always going to have a meaty tuck like just own that um and two depending on what additional surgeries you get because phalloplasty is technically just like the the one the surgery to get a penis but it's often used sort of as like an umbrella term for all of the other surgeries that can be done concurrently like scrotoplasty uh, which is like the creation of the balls or uh, like urethroplasty stuff like that so with uh like tucking it's the general consensus is that if you get phalloplasty but not scrotoplasty that is probably the easiest way to tuck because it's like okay you just kind of like tuck your tuck your dick on back there's nothing else sort of blocking it down there
2: Uh, and you know it's it might be a bit uncomfortable, uh,
1: but that's the easiest. And yeah, it'll be a little bit, meaty, but like, like you know, you can deal. Uh, if you get scrotoplasty, uh, if if you don't have implants, it's going to be harder. And then if you do have implants, like I do, it's pretty much impossible because you know there's just nowhere to nowhere to put your balls. Like there's no there's no like like <laughs> else to shove them up into.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah oh (laughs) yeah
1: and so like even when i like sit on my balls weird i notice and i'm like oh god probably i'm like you know walking with my legs too close together because i have thick thighs i'm like oh good lord you know now i understand why everyone's like fiddling with their boxers in public like (laughs) i do that too now (laughs) I'm like, oh, God, I hope no one's looking at me while I, like, mess around with my dick and balls underneath my skirt or whatever.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry
0: for laughing.
1: No, I um, mean, it, it's funny. It's funny. These it's weren't funny. things that I was expecting.
0: Yeah, it's no, frustrating. These are the I'm things sure. they didn't
1: warn me about. It right? It is. It is. And Well, it's I think, oh sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was just I mean this whole story has been so interesting. But say what you're going to say. <laughs> I
1: was just going to was... say like I think it it puts me in this very interesting position cuz one, I am like I am physically effeminate through no fault of my own like You know, I have literally done everything under the sun to masculinize myself. I have gotten surgeries that people had never heard of, like in order to appear more masculine. Like I've had my like face done, like or like my like jaw and like neck and stuff, or like my my cheeks. I got I got buckle fat removal when everyone was like against that in female celebrities. I didn't realize that was happening um until I like had already had it done and then everyone was like no they're you know they're buckle fat no not the cheeks and I was like oh I guess other people were also thinking about this that's crazy anyway um but like you know I have done I've been on hormones for years uh gotten surgeries I can dress in all men's clothing I can have my hair short I can be I can be bald and like an area that isn't especially like LGBT friendly and still be referred to consistently as a woman. And so, you know, it's like very far outside of my control. And for me as someone who is just like an effeminate person, like just with the way that I, like I posture myself and the way that I talk and the way that I, like to present i'm also in like fine jewelry retail which i think is a very fun uh environment for a combination like gay boy straight like gay boy girl jew (laughs) because i'm like perfect would you feel more comfortable talking to like a boy or a girl about this would you be more comfortable talking to like a quote-unquote straight girl or a gay boy about your jewelry what makes you feel more comfortable and I'll like fag it up or down depending on whatever the situation calls for and it's very funny so my like vocal pitch will change depending on who I'm talking to of course uh but I do kind of enjoy that flexibility but you know so it's like despite all of my efforts to masculinize my body and my appearance with pretty much zero zero pay zero payoff from other people like I still get gendered the same way uh you know I do like wearing women's clothes I do like being the sort of (laughs) I, I like being the girl in the gay relationships not exclusively but like I do enjoy it uh I do really have an interest in like Women's clothes and uh, like heels and everything. I've, you know, kind of returned to my like high school adolescent self where I was very like more outwardly feminine and was really obsessed with, you know, heels and makeup and stuff. And that's all things that I'm really coming back to now. But I think it does often put me in situations where my experiences are very similar to those of a lot of like trans women and not just trans women like trans women trans feminine people like you know passable cross-dressers or not so passable cross-dressers even you know cross-dressers femboys uh kind of like any really like effeminate gay men like there's often some experiences that A lot of us have in common. And I think the way that I talk about my life, that I, you know, as all of these things are things that like are sort of thrust upon me. It's like when I'm treated as like a, when I'm like perceived as a trans woman, or like when people respond to my body and assume that, you know, I'm a girl with a dick, uh, or if it's like, or even when I like just, kind of refer to myself that way because it's easier. Uh there's often some interesting feedback that I get about, you know, essentially trying to like be like a wannabe trans woman or impersonate trans women or like present myself as a trans woman and like intentionally hide certain aspects about myself. And I think the funniest thing is this usually comes about way after they like interact with me um because people will you know see see what I have to say about my life and uh the ways that I talk about it and the ways that I like move through my day and uh you know (laughs) my my literal lived experiences and be like wow that's so relatable and then I guess feel some sort of way when they find out later that like Oh well, like you're actually like a man or whatever, and I always find it kind of silly. And uh, I don't know. I, I I do find it silly and probably based out of like insecurity of like, oh well, like if this other person, you know, identifies this type of way, but I have a relatable experience, then what does it mean about like my identity? Sort of the same way that like the trans masculine subreddit got really pissy about me and was like oh well like I can't believe this like delusional cis woman who's gonna regret her surgery is like allowed to do this and but you know I'm not and blah 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 like I can't believe that like she got this ahead of like real actual trans men uh but when I like spoke to the person when I like messaged the person that posted about it I was like so you don't know me, like we don't even live in the same country. What is your damage with me? Like, I don't really understand what your problem is. So tell me. And his whole thing was just like and so we talked back and forth and basically what his argument was was that like if I felt the way that you felt, then I would identify as like a binary FTM femboy, but you don't. And that upsets me. And I'm like Okay, so then consider me that way, like if that's easier for you, then like what do you care? Like okay, so like if that's how you think about me, then think about me that way. Like what does it matter to me? I don't control how you like perceive me, but like you know, so I often find that in a way that I believe is very in line with like transmisogynistic thinking anyway that like my my like personhood as this like quote unquote like male like male bodied or male whatever individual who like expresses a lot of effeminacy and is often like read as a woman even uh, that you know people feel like deceived or tricks or you know and therefore that's bad and is in need of punishment which you know I feel like is very heavily regurgitated transmisogynistic rhetoric anyway and like i don't consider myself like transmisogyny affected like i i definitely don't believe that but i do believe that like transmisogyny like homophobia or uh you know other types of like social these like social powers uh you know, can I think always be weaponized
0: <laughs> i think that we've gotten like you never you never hear anyone talk about like sexism anymore, right? Like no one ever says the word sexism anymore. But
2: like
0: mm-hmm. um in an era of my life where I was like I've like considered myself trans and like spoken about myself as trans since I was 17. Um but didn't start mm-hmm. actually transitioning until I was like 23 um -hmm. for an era of that time i was like i'd i'd moved to a new city i was going to grad school i was going to grad school in the humanities so obviously (laughs) i'm like you know the kind of person that ends up doing a podcast like this and i'm aware that i'm like gonna be coming out as trans relatively soon but i'm like okay in the meantime i want to kind of try to make sense to the people around me so i like basically sort of like styled myself as like um like one of those like kind of like 70s like gay lib communists you know um mm-hmm. and this was easy because this is also stuff that i genuinely really interested in and care about but um it was also a way that i felt like okay these people won't be too surprised when i come out as trans but like i can also like talk about like trans stuff in the meantime as something that's like obviously sort of like um contiguous with this but like a lot of gay guy, there's like stuff from like the 70s of like gay guys writing about like homophobia as an expression of sexism and i find that like yeah. really interesting well i just find that like a really interesting it makes me like i'm like almost, honestly i'm kind of like i feel like people use the word misogyny like way too much when like sexism shows that like Th- this is like this sort of contiguity between like homophobia, misogyny, transphobia, transmisogy, all this stuff. It just has to do with the fact that like, sex is a like sort of thing that's like you need to do it right, or we're gonna punish you. And there's a billion fucking ways you can go wrong. And trying to like sort of tease out all the like, oh well, this is like the specific like you know these are the specific strands of this that make up like homophobia versus these are the specific strands that make up transphobia. That kind of like um that kind of like unraveling that kind of work is like you're only ever going to really like you're not going to ever arrive at something that perfectly like you know approximates reality or describes everyone's experience like you're always going to mm-hmm. end up with some weird fucking like abstract theory and then like you're going to meet someone whose life is going to fuck it up who's just going to be like well yeah. you know that doesn't actually make sense and you just kind of have to like that's not to say it's a useless sort of like project, but it's a project that you need to be very keen at the limits on. And uh, I think yeah. a lot of a lot of people um, story story of this whole you know century of of gay sex is uh, us just kind of fucking that up over and over again. Um,
1: yeah, I mean but... that's kind of that's kind of similar to my own experience of just like you know when I talk about experiences of my own life as being like if like an effeminate gay male that uses like she they pronouns and also like is very loose with gender it's like you know I don't mind like I enjoy being the girl like I have two boyfriends one of them I am their boyfriend and the other one I am very much like their girlfriend and they like refer to me pretty much exclusively with like female, like feminine, female, whatever identifiers. And like he speaks Spanish. And so he'll refer to me as like, you know, like mommy, princesa, like stuff like that. Uh and it's all things that I like. Um and would not mind with like other guys too. And so it's like when I present these sort of situations that I encounter, uh, trying to like analyze them and see like well is this an instance of like homophobia or transphobia or trans misogyny even or misogyny or sexism or whatever i feel like it's going to ultimately be be fruitless because a lot of these systems are so interdependent on each other it's like how do you have uh how do you have transphobia if you don't have notions of gender and what gender means and how to and how to regulate gender then like how do you know who is and isn't trans and then you know if you don't have all of these other systems in place then like what like how do we how do we how do we have homophobia if we don't know what is like same versus you know not same gender and like how do we police that and so I feel like a lot of these instances that I feel like are sort of messy with gender and sexuality that I guess I feel like a lot of people who um, sometimes could be a little bit insecure about the notion that, yes, not every, like, like sexuality and gender cannot be, like, super cleanly delineated one from each other, Uh it is kind of unsettling to feel like, oh, well, now at certain, like in certain instances, all of these, like, all of these systems sort of converge and coalesce and like kind of do the same thing to multiple people regardless of who, like the, like who is being, who like the recipient versus the offender is, you know, like, um, what like what do we what do we sort of what do we do from there uh and so i find that it's you know like it is hard to make 100% concrete statements as much as we would like to or as much as like research would like to or like you know theorists would like to about you know who does and doesn't experience certain things but Oftentimes, I find, especially in like trans spaces, there's this hesitation to find any type of community with like cisgender men, um, which I find kind of interesting, uh, especially from like trans masculine individuals. Cause I'm like, I don't want to be like, so why are you transitioning? <laughs> like, why are you transitioning then if you don't like want to be associated with this at all? But like, uh, you know, I find. That especially with phalloplasty, because it's obviously about genitals and like genitals and and sex in a way that, in my opinion, top surgery just does not even begin to relate. Is like such a sim is is such is so heavily embedded with gender, uh, in a way that like chests really aren't. And so I think that like having genitals that are generally associated with like cis men and having an embodiment that is like more similar that like part that gets me parsed more closely to like cisgender men, most cisgender men than like most transgender men is it's just been a really it's it's a really sort of interesting uh like way to be trans I guess especially like I know a lot of uh trans people who get bottom surgery actually end up like stop identifying as trans and like for me personally I don't think I would ever stop identifying as like non-binary but um I do understand why a lot of people do it it's like a lot of you know quote-unquote like trans man trans mask issues just no longer apply to you and the ways that people talk about, like, cisgender men as being diametrically opposite uh, and, like, having no concept of understanding, uh, like, transgender men and their issues, like, really falls apart when you're, like, I don't know, pissing in the same urinals. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you know yeah and Um, it's
0: yeah no I mean I definitely I don't know I feel like I experienced a lot of like in like my yeah like I I feel like a lot of things that people talk about as being like and it's not even necessarily like that they were never relevant to me but like having had surgery now there's just like a lot of stuff even though like I right I had um like a shallow depth vaginoplasty so like that's like a sort of like non standard thing that i have to talk about with like partners before we have sex and like mm-hmm. but there's just like so many things that are just like not like really what gets talked about when people mm-hmm. talk about like trans women or it's like i don't know like i experienced like i don't know like if like like i had like an incident at work recently that was like i feel like i might have talked about the podcast i don't want to talk about it right now but it was like there were, like, a lot of ways that the situation could have been, like, read as, like, sort of, like, transphobic or, like, homophobic or whatever. And, it like, I'm, like, I don't want to, like, tease out, like, you know, what's more of this. It's, like, I'm, like, fairly certain that I'm, like, stealth at work. If anyone at my workplace knows or suspects that I'm trans, they've never really done anything to give me, like, a really significant indication of that. And, like... Mm-hmm. I don't know, so it's like I don't fucking I don't know, like it's just it's I don't know, it's just it's just people sometimes are just fucking weird. Um, but it's definitely like I feel like sometimes we have this like idea of what it like. Like it's almost like have you seen people on tw- on Twitter that account that's been like going viral among all the trans people? Um, it's like Halamede or something like that. I don't know how how on Twitter you are. Um
1: I mean I mostly post gay porn on Twitter and about sucking dick, so I'm not very much yeah. on like, the trans side of Twitter.
0: No, that's fair. Um It's it's a very I honestly don't know. I I don't understand the account. But um, what was the what was the post? One of my friends like it's this this account that's been going viral for like um just posting like very funny sort of like chasery stuff about trans women and people keep saying that it's a cis girl behind it i it's pretty obvious to me that it's a trans girl running the account at least that's my assumption i guess as as much as you can i don't know i mean like as much as you can draw these things out from an anonymous twitter account my gut is that this is a trans girl having fun maybe it's a cis girl um that is it is funnier it is funnier if it's a cis girl but um i just don't (laughs) one of my friends like responded to her and was like um what do you think about neo pussy um which i love as a phrase incidentally unrelated um and she was just like what's that and my friend was like um, it's, like, the vagina of a trans woman that's had vaginoplasty, and their response was, like, so they're not trans anymore, which is a very funny, a very funny thing to post, like, as that sort of character, um, but that's, like, also, like, seems to be how some people kind of think about, um, some people seem to think about, uh, like, genital surgery, is that it's this, like, very, like, assimilationist step. And, like, yeah. yeah, my life has gotten a lot easier in a lot of ways since I got it because, like, I don't know, right? Like, I live in the South. Like, I couldn't be stealth at work if I hadn't had surgery because, like, that was a prerequisite to my state changing the letter on my driver's license that I would, like, mm-hmm. you know, have to provide to my workplace before I, like, you know, got hired there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that was, like, so that's, like, a sort of, like, a major thing that has changed for me um but it's also like i don't know it's like these problems that have like solutions that are like they don't mean that the problems are like just they don't mean that it's like good that these are problems like we should you know like politically i mean politically we don't need fucking um letters on our driver's license i think
1: right Um, <laughs> exactly.
0: I I almost said something very uh, very, very uh, libertarian there.
1: Um, we don't need driver's license. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't believe. I I believe that. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm not no. a libertarian. I'm just a uh, an ex-anarchist. That's still sort of an anarchist. But um, that's neither here nor there that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um but where the fuck was I? <laughs> um, the the point is um I don't know, like we're out here. I think that it's becoming more and more obvious that that it's like that that's not necessarily the case. I feel like more and more trans people that I know are maybe this is just a fact of like getting older, right? Like I'm not a teenager anymore. Like when I you know, like, yeah, like, when I was, you know, 18, none of the trans people I knew had had surgeries, because all of us were, like, 18, and had, like, yeah. if any of us were, like, if any of us were interacting with, like, medical, with, like, doctors about this stuff, it was very new, because, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, not many, I don't think I knew at the time anyone that, like, grew up in a home that was, like, affirming or like trans friendly, even if it wasn't like outwardly transphobic. It was just kind of like uh yeah. 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 Um,
2: um but
1: I guess for oh sorry.
2: No, I, I was just hey, saying hey, that hey. like
1: yeah I think that phalloplasty within the the trans I'm gonna just call it the FTM community. If you want to cancel me on Twitter, go ahead write a call out post about it that's probably the least of the bad opinions that i have or hold anyway so i feel like in the ftm community there's a really interesting sort of dynamic because there is this self-propagating um very deeply instilled belief that phalloplasty is this like exceptionally dangerous experimental painful uh traumatizing like surgery with like zero good outcomes and like it's gonna suck and your life is gonna be horrible forever and you know i think that a lot of these like ftm spaces really just perpetuate that because a lot of people who would be interested in phalloplasty are fed this like fear mongering and misinformation. And, you know, then are sort of like sidetracked to actually finding out any like current relevant, more, uh, unbiased information about it. And, you know, I was talking to my post-op boyfriend who is like, they're almost 40 I'm uh soon to be 27 and I had surgery when I was 24 and they had surgery when they were like 38 37 38 uh and like they were telling me that the reason that a lot of this um like a lot this like ideology in FDM spaces is so prevalent is because uh like way back when before. It's not even way back when, probably like 10, 15, 20 years ago when phalloplasty was only performed in like Belgrade, Serbia or in like very, very underground clinics in the U.S. Like there was no like public discussion of it. There was no like public surgeons in the U.S. that performed phalloplasty and trans men were having their like children taken away for being trans And for, you know, it's like, oh, well, you don't have a penis, so you're not a man. So it's like, you shouldn't have children because, you know, like, you're not like a real man. can't be like a real parent. And apparently the ways that people sort of fought that was to say like, oh, well, this expectation that you want me to like get, you know, phalloplasty, uh, that's actually like a worse outcome than not doing anything at all. Because look, you have to travel really far and it's like a six month recovery where you have to like pay the entire time to be in another country and like the outcomes are so are so poor and you know it's so awful and terrible and sort of that and utilizing that rhetoric to change the ways that their you know like personhood was Like I, you know, like understood, uh, in order to be seen as like real men without like penises, and so that was something interesting for me to learn. Since my boyfriend uh, had wanted bottom surgery since they were like thirteen, before I was literally alive. Like they had wanted (laughs) this type of surgery, um, and it was only in the past couple years that. You know it's it's only even in the last like ten, maybe fifteen years that there's even been a phalloplasty an open phalloplasty surgeon in the u s. Like for a lot of trans men, the you know, big excitement when Dr. Curtis Crane came from, you know, Serbia, uh, his like, you know, whatever his apprenticeship or whatever it was called there and opened up shop here in the states. And you know, there started to be actual like, balloplasty surgeons to go through Uh, like that was a huge that was a huge big deal and then you know once bottom surgery began to be covered under uh like California state law which uh, I think happened within the past maybe 10 years California insurances like all state insurances have to cover like biomedical transition including bottom surgery so like then you had more insurances that would cover it And, you know, kind of fast forward to today, we're seeing a lot more, a lot of, a lot more teams that, you know, perform bottom surgery. Uh, Not enough, definitely. The wait times are often out the ass. There's, uh, you know, a wide range of surgeons. Some surgeons have, you know, specialize in one or two particular types of surgery that, you know, just don't work for everybody. Um, And like... There's, but there is, there are like more teams being developed, which is, which is a great step forward. Uh, there's more, there are more options to get bottom surgery, to have bottom surgery covered uh, under insurance, allegedly. Not that insurances love playing by the rules and paying for your surgery and not doing what I, what they did to me, where uh, United Healthcare, after, you know, uh, agreeing, uh, to agreeing to the pre-authorization, signing a special contract with the uh, surgery team that I worked with, uh, the Bunky Clinic and Dr. Chen out in San Francisco, uh, and like signing a whole contract saying yes, we agree to that this will be in network and we will pay ninety thousand dollars for the surgery. That's it. Like we as United Healthcare agree to do that. Six months later, was just like, just kidding this was out of network. That's not our responsibility. And when both me and the surgeon's office tried to appeal and was like, you literally signed this contract saying that you wouldn't do this, that you were going to pay, they were just like, um, that's just kidding on that, denied. And I literally had to escalate it up to the state level again and be like, uh, excuse me, uh, they literally signed this contract Saying that they would pay for it. Can you do something about this? And like the state did intervene, but it was just such a like a ridiculous uh experience to be like six months post-op surgery being told by the insurance, like, we're not actually going to pay for that when, you know, of course they already agreed to it. So, you know, it's and I'm not saying that there aren't also a lot of other different factors. It is very it is more often than not a very like expensive procedure. Uh, if not just like, you know, the surgeries themselves, the insurance itself, the like associated prep work, but also, you know, taking time off the fact that it might be, it is it is more often than not multiple surgeries, uh, you know? And so of course there is, I, I I do want to like recognize that there are financial barriers and I do think that there are like, that is true. And also I want to push back on the idea that getting bottom surgery is only for like wealthy trans people because that's never been true. Like,
2: yeah,
1: and I really don't like that idea because I think it pushes, uh, like it, I, I like I, I just I don't think that it pays respects to the people that, you know, like have come for that are like are poor that get bottom surgery on like state Medicaid or that like do manage to like scrimp and save up to, let's say, go overseas somewhere like, you know, uh, like I, I remember reading, like Janet Mock's, like Redefining Realness, where she talked about like sex working in order to get vaginoplasty, and so I'm like, the idea, like, you know, whenever I talk about, whenever I talk about bottom surgery, especially as and like kind of any other sort of like surgical issues, even like cosmetic surgery, it's like, um, with trans people, and something that I was sort of curious about is like. You know, this idea that uh, phalloplasty is inherently, like, far more risky than other surgeries, which currently is not true to the same extent. I think it's, like, like a risk of... And it's also kind of, like, what exactly, like, the risks are uh, is very different than from other surgeries. Uh, but basically, it's, like, sort of my my mindset is just, like, has phalloplasty necessarily always been that much more like experience like you know that much more like dangerous than any other new surgery at its time but also recognizing that like transgender people will get like for a lot of transgender people they are willing like we are willing to die in the in like in pursuit of getting these of of having these surgeries You know, that is a choice that a lot of us are very eager and willing to make. It's like, you know, people will, you know, if people don't have access to like the best medical care, but they want surgery, they will go to less reputable places with perhaps lower standards of care in order to get them. And so a lot of this like trans medical, especially surgical access, especially with bottom surgery is something as like a very major surgery it's like for me a lot of it comes down to like sort of a harm reductionist like a very like bodily autonomy centric approach where it's like trans people have been getting surgery since the beginning of surgery it's like if you could find somebody who would do what you wanted them to for some amount of money then like there were people that would do it it's like the term you know getting pumped was like popularized by a lot of like like black trans women within like ball culture, especially it's like, you know, the things that people saw on like pose are, are rem- are like reminiscent of like real things that people would go through, like getting, you know, less than reputable fillers or like any other, or like, you know, traveling overseas, getting surgery, finding the like, you know, The person who knew the person who knew the person that knew the, like, very underground, like, Oklahoma phalloplasty surgeon. Like, there are people that have had phalloplasty for, like, 20, over 20 years now. And it's, you know, a lot of it is through this kind of, like, back channel accessing. And so, for me, with phalloplasty, it's, like, the, the way that I approached it was very much, like, not, like, okay, so, like how do we make it go as perfect as humanly possible with no complications and no issues especially given the initial route that i chose that had a very high complication rate it was you know what are the you know sort of what are realistic expectations and how how can we do like uh risk like risk management how do we you know realistically go into this how do I temper my expectations uh and how do we deal with complications when they come up so for me I've had uh like I've had maybe four or five complication related surgeries including one this year that uh I don't know if it was necessarily like super related to like phalloplasty but I did get a vaginectomy like a year and a half later from my phalloplasty after I realized I actually don't like having a vagina at all I don't really like vaginas in general um and so I ended up getting this like really bad abscess this recurring abscess who knows why uh and it had kept popping up uh over like the past several months and I was like well I don't really want to deal with it it's just going to go away on its own and then it very much didn't didn't and you know I, I know and and basically I ended up in the hospital needing emergency surgery because like I uh had this like like deep abscess like inside of like kind of like in my taint that was forcing its way out but there was no hole for it to go out of so it was just like trying to push through the like the perineum skin in a really painful way it was like I know how people describe birth as like oh you're putting a watermelon through like a straw or whatever and I was like I was trying to lay an egg through a brick wall and like that was it was not working <laughs> so
2: yeah
1: yeah So it was rough, very, very hard time. But I mean, like it was kind of out of my hands. Like we don't know why it happened. There's there's no way to really like predict what the complications from phalloplasty are going to be, uh, and how one's body recovers. But I think another thing that gets really lost with phalloplasty is that the term complication, which you know, people get really freaked out about. They're like, oh, well, everyone has complications is a really vague term it can mean literally anything from like oh you have this like wound separation that heals on its own and maybe takes like an extra couple weeks uh and just goes away by itself to like yeah like it can be that to it can be like oh well there's like a fistula or a stricture which are like urinary issues that really only arise if someone goes for like urethral lengthening which can be like not done in general so like that's like a a, that's a common point of like risk risk assessment is like oh well people that want to get phalloplasty but like if they don't particularly care about the ability of standing to pee then um you know they can forego that entirely and just, like, keep their natal urethra where it is and, like, have, like, a penis and just be done and, like, be done with it. No risk of, like, fistulas or strictures, which are some of the big ones for, like, you know, some of the big urethral complications to, uh, you know, something like mine where mine, one of mine, I had several uh, over period of time was you know like a an abscess like a deep-seated tissue infection um that can happen all the way up to like you know total phalloplasty failure for whatever reason and like I've known several people that have you know either for that complication or for other reasons have chosen to like completely redo their phalloplasty and like choose a different donor site Um. Or things of that nature. And like, it's, I think hearing the term complication, everyone sort of expects it to be these like worst case scenarios, but more often than not, they're not. (laughs) And a lot of the complications are significantly less scary and less terrifying to deal with day to day. And even the people that I know that have had these like really, uh, large, like complications that required, like you know, emergency phalloplasty redos, whatever, due to often previously und like under like previously diagnosed or even undiagnosed issues. It's very rarely, it's like very very rare for it to be like, whoa, your dick just fell off. That's crazy. I guess we didn't like sew it on well enough. Like that's not really a thing that happens. Um but you know it's like it's a big surgery and a lot of people i think freak themselves out from learning about it and a lot of it i'm guessing is either because they've they are for some reason not allowing themselves to want bottom surgery maybe it's because their current can their like current environment can't sustain it or you know like financially can't sustain it um or like it's too big of a challenge for them to deal with at the moment but it is very funny because you know I've started to talk like when I talk to people and and they're like oh I would never I would never do that and then like a year later it will hit me up and be like so tell me more about this like phalloplasty process and I'm like yeah so it's fun between me and my boyfriend with different people that we know um to just kind of make a little guess and be like oh well this person's probably you know like x amount of years from getting bottom surgery and they're probably you know gonna come back in the next like year or two and be like oh so about that bottom surgery that you were talking about what is that actually like
0: yeah well and you know i remember a thing that um i i we talked about i had um I did an episode with a friend of mine who's in process right now for uh, metoidioplasty, but we talked a lot about meta and fallow and and all those sorts of things on his episodes. And one thing that he said, um is that, um, I think it was it's phallo specifically has both one of the highest complication rates and also one of the highest satisfaction rates of any surgery. And then so it's like these things can coexist. Like you will end up yeah. like, these things can ha- these things can happen like i had a pretty minor complication it's like the second most common i had um a hematoma in one of my labia uh-huh. that was like really uncomfortable and really painful and like the process of having to like go back to the er to get it drained was like i like had like some like yeah like i i got like for like a couple weeks after whenever like you know, if someone else had to, like, look at my vagina for something, or I had to, like, sorry, I got, like, you know, like, my heart rate increased, and I was, like, stressed out, like, I was mm-hmm. this fucking, yeah, it's not fun, but, um, I don't know, now I'm, now I don't really think about it that much, um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, that was, congrats. like, a thing that happened when I was, like, seven days into having a vagina, and now I'm, like, a year yeah a couple months into i've had so many other experiences with my vagina since then so it's like that exactly one, that at the time feels like so important you know because it is important because yeah. it's like one seventh of my days of having a vagina and now it's not right. It's like one three hundredth um exactly so it's just <laughs> you know i don't know like you, you, be aware of these things right
2: like mm-hmm. um
0: But like, yeah.
1: And I think your friend, I I elected not to initially have my vagina removed. Uh, I had pretty much the the most common uh, complication that goes along with specifically the phalloplasty, no vaginectomy, and urethral lengthening, uh, like combination like that in particular has a very high complication rate, um, and that's just because. Uh, when a lot of the vaginal tissue is used to like pad out the neotenatal urethral junction that is created that kind of facilitates the urethral lengthening and allows the urine to travel from like your your natal urethra up into your your new urethra and like pee out of your dick and so without that extra padding it's very common to have like fistulas which are like small holes along the like urethra along the urethra that like leak urine so for a while I like while I was able to pee out of my dick I also was like peeing a little bit out of my vagina so it was kind of funny because people are like you don't pee out of your vagina and I'm like well I do anyway (laughs) (laughs) but like and and so yeah it was like I did that, and what that effectively meant for me is that I was just mostly sitting to pee for a while. Uh, But, like, otherwise, I was still having sex. I was still active and, you know, going about my daily life. I just, you know, I I never got to... I I kept saying that I was, like, should have been charging for golden showers at that point because I was, like, you're never going to have somebody that can pee on you twice at once but I'm <laughs> I'm I, I'm just so not committed to making anything my side hustle I like I hate hustling so I'm just like I'm on Grinder having sex with men and sometimes other people for free just like the inventors of this app unfortunately intended but yeah like so you know there was that or like Uh, I had issues with my erectile device. There was, like, it migrated uh, into a place that it shouldn't have, and it was uh, uncomfortable. And so, like, I had to have, I had to, like, forego penetrative sex, like, penetrating, which is kind of funny because since it got corrected, I also just have not done it (laughs) because, uh, I don't know, I'm... Like, another thing they don't tell you about getting phalloplasty is that, like, you know, once, you, once you're once you gaining sensation and you're having sex and you're seeing what you like, uh, you're going to develop your own preferences. Like, this idea that, like, oh, like, everyone is interested in blowjobs. Everyone wants to, in, like, penetrate, you know, and, like, top or, you know, whatever straight men do. Because I'm like, y'all don't top. I don't believe in that. i don't really believe in straight men i don't believe in like i don't believe in straight men and i don't believe in cis women um that's just it just doesn't make sense to me uh and so i'm just like but anyway uh you know i found that personally i have probably some of the best sensation that like of a lot of my friends that are at similar stages in like post-op as i am um, I've also just been a very sensitive person my entire life like I've always been able to orgasm a lot like a lot a lot uh completely on like doesn't even have to be from my genitals it's like um I never count like I personally didn't realize that I was orgasming so much because you know society was was saying that like oh like it's you know orgasming is just something that you do once or twice maybe if you're lucky during sex Um, And then you're done. And I was always like, well, it can't be that because it's happening far too frequently. And so and especially after having bottom surgery, I was like, well, this this can't be this this can't be orgasming because you're not supposed to be able to so easily orgasm after bottom surgery. And then, you know, realizing and like kind of talking to my partners. uh, And, you know, my boyfriend's telling me like, No, that's what you were doing, especially uh, the the newer one that I'm seeing, the cis boy. Um, He was, you know, when we hooked up, especially the first the first uh, time and a half when I didn't when I didn't tell him that I had surgery uh, and we were just, you know, having sex and he was just like telling me that, like, yeah, it was just really wild. You would like, you know, you would like orgasm and then I'd be and then you'd start again and I'd be like, wait, what is she doing? Uh, and, I, and you would go again and I was like whoa like what the fuck like why does this keep happening and you know I just like because of this like idea that you know with bottom surgery you are uh, inherently 100% of the time sacrificing sensation which like I went into phalloplasty like not necessarily believing but like content with because I was like I don't really need all of that but you know, it's a it's a risk worth taking. Uh, definitely did not end up being my reality. Like, uh, to the point where it's like I I've never like counted my orgasms. I don't count how I have never like looked at how many hours I can, you know, like have sex for because it it just gets too long to count. I think me and uh my post op boyfriend tried counting one time, and in thirty minutes we got up to like fifteen times. Like, 15 orgasms in 30 minutes with, like, no penetration, uh, no genital stimulation at all, uh, like, completely sober. And we only stopped because we saw a spider and it kind of killed the <laughs> mood. So, you know, I, it's like, I, I don't think I was able to be really in tune with my body uh, not just like sexually, but also just like physically. Like I didn't realize what it meant for my body to be in pain. Like I didn't recognize pain in my body, or a lot of my other, like a lot of the other ways that like my body functions, just because I had been so used to just like ignoring um, and like pushing down the whatever feelings I was having about my body, and just like accepting them, because I didn't realize that there was another option.
2: Yeah,
0: no, it's. Cr- I mean, yeah, it's. It's really crazy how much it changes, just like your basic sort of like day to day level of comfort. Like you said, you didn't realize that you had like bottom dysphoria until after surgery, and I think that it's like. I don't know. I've like said this to people. I was like, yeah, I didn't realize how like disruptive that was. Like how, just like awful, I felt all the time. Um, yeah.
1: Exactly. Just feeling feel like there's this
0: thing there that shouldn't be there and then um, yeah now it's now I've got, now I've got the thing that feels right for me which is awesome. Um, exactly. It's really it's cool. like
1: Yeah and so I think that's something that maybe also further alienated me from a lot of phalloplasty spaces because a lot of them were very sort of steeped in like transmedicalist uh, ideology uh, this very like Binary thinking. Maybe it's okay if non-binary people get bottom surgery, but like you know, it's really for the the real men, tm tm tm, uh, you know, who like want to be real men with their real man genitals or however you want to call it. Uh, and for me, it was like when I was going through the phalloplasty process and when I had decided that you know this is what I want to do. It was very muchly like, um, I like the The way that I would describe it, I never described it as a need, because I'm like, well, what are my basic needs? Like food, shelter, sleep, I could probably like limp along in life without getting phalloplasty. Maybe I've done it for 20 some odd years, I could probably just keep going. But I did have this like persistent desire to do it. And so I was like, yeah, it's not like, it's not like a need, but it is definitely a want, like a a, a deep want. And so um, you know like I've been wanting this for you know since I learned about it so you know it's time to prioritize you know my own feelings on this and be like you know if I want this so badly and I'm willing to accept you know just like the the risk that comes with it the financial burden that comes with it unfortunately and you know but ultimately it came down to it's like you know If, like, if I do go through this surgery, do I, like, accept my responsibility in, like, having chosen to undergo it? And knowing that, like, afterwards I will be living life, like, with a dick. Is that something that I can accept for myself? Where, you know, I think a lot of, and, you know, sometimes I would get freaked out about, like, oh, well, like, you know, I'm not really super solid on my gender. What if I decide, you know, what if I realize that, like, I am going to be a woman? What if, like, a cis woman? Or, like, what if I... Uh, realized that like oh like I don't want a dick and I think for me what was actually comforting was like hearing about you know this like Jerry Springer freak show woman who was like I think a trans woman that had gone like back and forth between getting like vaginoplasty and then phalloplasty and then vaginoplasty again and I don't know if that's something that like my mind concocted but I don't know seeing these like obviously like sensationalized, like, like tokenized, almost fetishized, uh, like trans people, often trans women on TV. Uh, it's like, you know, I didn't understand what was so bad about being them and being like them. And so it was like this woman who was like, yeah, you know what? Like it wasn't for me. And then it was for me. And then it wasn't for me. I was like, okay, well, like that means that somebody else has already done this and there's already a precedent for it and I could do it too. And so it felt kind of comforting to know that, like, well, I have that option, not that I ever really think I would take it, but also it's like, okay, so if I, you know, get bottom surgery and it's like, oh, I realize that I'm actually like, you know, like a woman. uh, I don't know if I would necessarily consider myself a cis woman still, but like, you know, if I, if I realize otherwise, and I'm like, well, I don't see what's so bad about living as like a woman with a penis like that seems pretty cool to me so you know i unlike many annoying detransitioners who are really outspoken about it it's like you you agreed to do this it's like so you have to take responsibility for that choice that you ultimately made the choice you know the choice that i made and it's like i am in my position doing what i think is best for myself Uh, and, you know, I will accept the consequences of it as it, you know, as it continues to unfold. Not that I ever really thought that there would be an issue with it, but it was, like, it did help me kind of, like, make peace so that, you know, my, my fears around phalloplasty were that it was going to be denied to me, either through the insurance for some reason, or, you know, I would get sick, or the doctor would, I don't know, like, break his leg, and then I would break my leg, and then You know, like every every day for the weeks leading up to surgery, I was like, good Lord, if I go rock climbing, then I might sprain my ankle and then I won't be able to get surgery. Or maybe I would just lie about it and not tell them that I sprained my ankle, but then just get surgery and then deal with it later. Uh, So I think for me going into it with a lot of like planning done, research done, a lot of, uh, like, organizing my, like, friends uh, and resources and uh, a lot of reliance on, like, community support and, like, community aid, uh, mutual aid, stuff like that was, you know, what really made me feel very confident in going through the process itself. And then afterwards, uh, you know, I was, like, it was, like, five days in the hospital and I think on day four was really where it hit me that I was like, oh, I never have to interact with genitals I don't like ever again. Like, I am no longer used to interact with genitals that I feel like are a science experiment every time I try and interact with them, that I have to have this like clinical detachment to try and like touch or interact with that I think are like gross, <laughs> that, I, that I just, I'm like, that I hate, and I was like, I, like, I didn't like them on me, I didn't like forcing myself to interact with them on other people, and I think this, it's having gotten phalloplasty kind of broke this wall down of, like, you know, I have been forcing myself to be comfortable with something, uh, like, both, like, personally and, like, even sexually, that uh, I didn't realize there were other options, I didn't recognize that I had bottom dysphoria uh if you want to call it that I don't really care but like uh, I didn't recognize that I had it because it was like this was it was my normal it was my baseline and who was I like how was I supposed to know that I could have felt you know a different way like a neutral way about my body especially with this idea that like oh well like you know, vaginas are very highly stigmatized and, like, it's, you know, because of bad education and, you know, lack of, you know, whatever, kind of, and I felt like, and me as somebody who, for other reasons, really, like, internalizes those types of of things and takes it to me as, as if, like, the onus is on me for not, like, pushing myself to love it enough. It was, you know, really it was just so it was such a big burden off my shoulders that I did not realize I was carrying and I think for me that's why uh you know like bottom surgery in particular and bottom surgery access is something that I do a lot of uh like work around whether that's helping people uh talk to their doctors giving them like templates of like Here's how to talk to your primary care physician about getting a referral to a specific surgeon. And here's the best insurances if you want to go through this. And, you know, like, oh, like I do a lot of uh, like redistributing uh, supplies, especially from the surgeons that I went to, which get people from not only all over the country, but actually all over the world uh, who come in, they stay for six weeks and, you know, and then bounce. And so, a lot of the times people come in with oh they need like x y and z thing that they didn't pick up beforehand or oh i have all of this like surgery supplies that i don't need anymore so let me like pass this on to somebody else or like giving people rides to and from surgery uh, and you know it's just really driven by the fact that like i had <laughs> like i had never experienced like a feeling like that um before of this, like wow, I feel so, like relieved, and my body feels so normal. Um, that I was just like, yeah, this is this is really important to me. Uh, and it's something that I actually like, you know, put my like time and money and an effort towards uh, like getting other people able to do it as well, which is always then funny to me when I get these like weird, bizarro like responses about, you know, whether it's like the trans medicalist being like, oh, well, like, I can't believe this, like you're doing this or like, you've already done this. Or, you know, if I say something kind of off the cuff about how like, I'm, I'm actually personally trying to get more trans men to get phalloplasty so I have more cock to suck. Uh, You know, people get upset about that and are like, oh, well, like, you know, sorry that, like, trans men's genitals aren't, like, up to snuff for you. But, like, maybe if you, like, put your money when your mouth was, then, like, you could say shit like that. And I'm like, I already do, actually. Like, I do far more than you, I promise. And they're like, well, not like that. Like,
2: okay. You know.
1: Yeah, I'm like, there is nobody that is more committed to this project. You don't understand. <laughs> nobody else has this level of commitment. I promise you. Like my, I am like my, my surgeons and I were on like, like not only was I one of their patients, but uh, you know, and they were going to be my clients as somebody who works in fine jewelry. And I was like, you know, So I'm like, don't even, don't even, don't even try with me. I am the, I am the office's favorite cross-dresser. I am like the beloved, you know, the beloved child of the house. (laughs) Uh, The surgeons love me. They love seeing me. They like, they all know me. And so I think it's funny when people are like, oh, like, I I can't believe this like quack doctor that would perform this surgery. And then every time I like have talked to my doctors or like, brought you know brought somebody else to do surgery or like you know helped my my now post-op boyfriend get bottom surgery it was always like wow you're so prepared for this like that's so thoughtful like you you're like really you know I'm so glad that you're here you know like you're always like such a good you're always doing such a good job and I'm like yeah so it's funny being like kicked out of paloplasty discords for I don't know I say being a faggot, they say being, like, you know, disrespectful and not sensitive enough to, I don't know, other people's dysphoria or whatever. So, you know how it is. Do
0: do you, you, you say that you, like, still see the surgeons around? Do they, do they, how do they, how do they gender you? Right? Like...
1: That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think the surgeons were, like, I was expecting them to be a lot more like tight assed about it, but they're both, but all of the surgeons that I worked with were very like cool people, which I think I would like to think you would sort of have to have that temperament, like being a surgeon in the Bay area, you know, it's like, it's San Francisco. It's, you know, you gotta be at least a little bit cool and chill. So I think maybe they use like they or he, but my relationship with pronouns is very much like the like Leslie Feinberg, you know, uh, I've been respected with the wrong pronouns and disrespected with the right ones so I don't really put a lot of stock in pronouns. Yeah. Like
0: Well no, I mean like I, I this is like a thing that I talked about with in my conversation with Gabe about um metoidioplasty was Gabe's perspective on this was at least that like if these like surgeons are repute- reputable if they're getting like really good, really consistent, you know, um if they're doing like really good and really consistent work then, like that means that they have to like be around trans people a lot and talk to a lot of trans people. and they sort of start to get it, I think, and they get like mm-hmm. the kind of like more, you know, like right. there there are there are obviously like elements of the sort of like trans of trans the trans community or whatever. There are like trans people that are like, you know, kind of gender cops or whatever. um. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, they they can do that. That's fine. But there's also, I think, a lot of us, and especially like a lot of us that do that do get surgery that are like way more just like, I just want to have fun with this. Like I want to, yeah. Like I want to, I want to do some weird shit. I want to, I want to get up to. This. I want to see what I can do. I want to, you know, push the limits to the envelope or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like, I, I think that that's like a very real thing. I don't know I didn't really I didn't really have that kind of experience with my doctor my surgeon but I also didn't really talk to him that much and I didn't really need to so Mm -hmm. um I don't know it was just kind of I would
1: say I would say for me as somebody who like has had this like really negative history of being like treated poorly for you know as I kind of said I feel like my gender is faggot because that's how a lot of people treat me as this like sexual like sexually aggressive predator when it's just like you know I am like I have had sexuality thrust upon me and you know kind of since I was very young whether that was like my own desires were being treated as you know like not okay or you know I was pursuing other boys and it was treated as like oh, you're still doing this in a really fucked up weird way. Like you're being to this, to that, to whatever. And myself as somebody who was like struggling to really understand where the boundaries were because I felt like a lot of people were, you know, I would get these like super contradictory information of like, well, you know, like you want me, especially in these like trans spaces where it was just like, well, you want want me to like be a man And but if I'm, you know, like the stereotypical, like, you know, over the top sexual gay man that I am, that I like am, I guess, but that's also wrong. And so I'm like, I don't really know what you want me to do. So it was really important for me that I had surgeons that I felt that I could feel comfortable around. And I was really lucky that I felt like I got that like with the team that I chose, like straight off. Like I didn't really want to consult with anybody else, uh, just because of their reputation. But um I remember I was working with Dr. Safa, who was one of the microsurgeons who does like the who did like the the arm uh the arm uh donors like graft. And you know, I was talking to him I had this really extensive list of questions. And it got to the part about like sex and some of the things that were just like, so what about like What about sounding? What about like chastity cages? What about this? Uh, And his response was like, you know, and every time he was answering even all of the other questions, it was very with like, he was very confident, but he was very like chill about it. It was like, you could tell that he had a lot of experience. It wasn't really going to be phased by stuff. Uh, But, you know, even if there was stuff that kind of threw him for a bit of a loop, it was like, you know, let me like answer this to the best of my ability. And so when I was talking about like, you know, like, chastity cages for example he was like listen I'll tell you what I tell all of the other CBT guys uh in an ideal world you would never do this ideally you would never do this realistically please try and wait at least like nine months after your last (laughs) surgery and like like don't go too hard on it like don't like restrict the blood flow for too long um you know like be like be careful Uh, and I really kind of appreciated that approach just because it sort of resonated with a lot of my like harm reduction uh, sort of mindset of just like people are going to do what they're going to do people are you know going to get genital piercings post-op when they're maybe not supposed to or engage in CBT when they're quote-unquote not supposed to but like you know we can't like prevent people from doing whatever they want with their body so it's Better to have a more like realistic, like, uh, kind of like a realistic uh, expectation. Like, you know, one of my surgeons had, where it was like, you know, yeah, ideally the answer would be never, but like in the real world where we live in, here's what I would like you to try and do, and you know, here's kind of the restrictions that I know of, and even those like with trans people that I've talked to that are post op, like afterwards, you know, even they'll have like more information too. But it was at least nice. You have a surgeon that wasn't like uh never do this with the like art arch- with this like amazing surgical masterpiece that i have created lest you like desecrated or whatever
2: yeah i have
1: i have like one more really good story from like my my like in my like time getting getting surgery before i kind of want to move to like what my life is like now because i think it's i have more funny stories just like being post-op and just like existing yeah but this one is really yeah. good so when well, i was like I think. I was, sorry
0: again. i was just gonna say because I, I always i don't want to do this at the very very end because i i feel like people turn off podcasts at that point but um mm-hmm. and it you were talking a minute or two ago about um the work you do now with like assisting people getting surgery and sort of like providing logistical support for that. Um, mm-hmm. And something that I know we talked about ahead of time was that you wanted to um, plug t for t Caregiving. Um, yeah. Which, it, which has been mentioned on this podcast before, but um, if, I don't know if you want to give a little spiel and then there'll be a link if you're interested in donating to t for t Caregiving. Um, they have like a little donation link I'll put in the uh in the show notes but um yeah explain t4t caregiving to the to the audience and then we can do some fun stories (laughs) get back to the fun stories
1: yeah okay so t4t caregiving is this really incredible organization it is by and for trans people basically if you are getting a major uh, if you're getting any type of trans surgery including phalloplasty and need like 24 seven caregiving after the fact, or you need somebody to help you get to from the hospital. uh, They are a team of like trans, trans folks that are very experienced in like post-op surgical care and have also gotten these surgeries themselves. And I think that especially for phalloplasty, where it's very common and probably the most common experience uh, to go into the surgery, you know, never having met somebody that's had fallow. Uh, like, having somebody there who has gone through this process, uh, has, you know, like, has seen it before, has lived it before, especially because, you know, it is it is a major <laughs> surgery. Things can look pretty, you know, wild and wacky afterwards. Uh, it's nice to have somebody there who, like, knows what they're looking at, uh, and can be very reassuring in terms of like medical care and just you know uh, making making you feel comfortable with the very you know unique sort of process that you're undergoing. It's a really great team of people, and you know I don't do a lot of the post op care, the 24 7 care that they do, but I'll help out you know if people need rides to from surgery or to from like post-op appointments. And so, you know, I've worked a lot with uh, some of the people who are involved, either, you know, uh, helping them out with uh, other other people being post-op or even <laughs> like some of the people that uh, like work for t for t and uh, giving them like pre and post-op supplies and giving them rides. So it's definitely, Something that I really encourage people to donate to if they have the resources, especially for phalloplasty, because they are trying to offer more uh, like scholarship essentially or like grant type things for care. Uh, you know, phalloplasty can be very expensive, it is a very big uh, time commitment, it is a very long recovery. And, you know, to, to have people there, to have somebody there 24 7 for a couple weeks or even days, you know, want to pay everybody fairly. And sometimes that can be, unfortunately, cost prohibitive. So the more donations they get, the more they can, you know, offer low to no cost uh, post-op care for, you know, people that qualify. And I think that's a really great way to sort of break down these financial barriers to getting uh,
2: Fallopian specifically. Yeah. Yes. So um, yeah,
0: like I said, there'll be a link to donate down there. Um, it's awesome. It's important. Yeah. Um, uh, let's let's talk about some what, fun story. Oh, sorry. What?
1: Sorry, I just thought of uh, one more organization that i think more trans people should be aware of especially if they're uh going through uh bottom surgery which often insurances will require like two letters of recommendation yeah yeah i don't know if you guys have done it before i actually don't think uh, it has not
0: mentioned on this podcast which is crazy because it's a really cool thing and yeah you tell people what it is and then there'll be a link down there too
1: sure so the Gallup, uh, it's a it's a directory. It stands for gender affirming letter AP. Uh, basically <laughs> There we go. Perfect. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you use sport. Well you're butch, so like do you know like sports, <laughs> you know, I, like set it up and you like slam dunked it or whatever? What? <laughs> okay, oh, never mind. A layup.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not that kind of butch. Uh,
1: oh, okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. That's
0: that's okay. I was
1: I was only a jock in high school, but you know, it's like yeah, okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, yeah, but like a- anyway. So they are a directory of uh therapists, some of whom are also trans, broken out by state that are willing and able to write free like free letters of like surgical recommendation after a single meeting uh i've used them before uh when i was getting some of my like when i got like facial surgery or like body surgery or um my letters had expired and i needed to get new ones uh you know i had uh like some some really great experiences the turnaround times were pretty good And, you know, it was just really nice when I didn't have, like, a a consistent therapist and still needed these surgical letters to just have this resource. So, you know, uh, especially for people that are worried about, like, the the cost of, you know, finding another therapist to write the letter of recommendation, this is a great resource because it is, like, entirely free, and they will write the the letter after a single session with you. And in my experience, the sessions were like, okay, we just need to get like your name down, your pronouns. How would you like me to write this letter? What surgeries are we going for? Like uh just kind of filling out a lot of the 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 information templates and in a very like very chill, like non-judgmental way. And I even had uh one of the therapists was also uh, like a a trans man that had, had like body uh like you know like uh bottom surgery body surgery uh things like that so it was really nice being able to like pretty quickly like get these things taken care of and not stress about it as as hard
0: Hell yeah. Yeah. Gallup is also really cool. I will say I went to their website. Their directory is not up right now. It says it will be back shortly. Um, I don't know why that is. But um, yeah, Gallup well, is really cool. Um, I've never had to use them because my the therapist I see is a trans guy. So I've had, I don't know, I've had very easy time with uh, all this stuff, blessedly. But important resource, um, mm-hmm. although just like I don't know seems like a good way to generally find a therapist. maybe I mean, I guess if you have more specific needs, but I guess it then maybe it's not like the number one thing, but I feel like I would very strongly like take the fact that a therapist was willing to like sign up for this thing as like a like that is a green flag i would I would see you for regular therapy,
1: yeah,
0: um, but. I don't know. I'm sure there's some weirdos on in here. Um. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. Um, yeah. Back to the fun, back to the fun